Okay, all right. We got this going here. And so we should be good. Okay, so okay. I'm going to read out your biography here. Sir Tim Waterstone is one of Britain's most successful businessmen, having built the Waterstones empire that started with one small shop in 1982 and grew within 10 years to become the largest bookselling group in Europe. In this charming and evocative memoir entitled The Face Pressed Against a Window, he recalls his formative years in a small town in rural England at the end of the Second World War and the troubled relationship he had with his father before moving on to the epiphany he had while studying at Cambridge, which set him on the road to Waterstones and gave birth to the creative strategy and business philosophy that made him a high street name. We're at the Garrick Club in London. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much. Thank you. Maybe we should get this out of the way right off the bat. Waterstones with an apostrophe, Waterstones without an apostrophe. It doesn't have an apostrophe now because you don't own it anymore? Is that it? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it had an apostrophe for 30 years of life, and um, there's certain problems about um, trading online, you know, getting apostrophes in are difficult and everything else, and the CEO got hold of me and said, you know, you know, you could have a heart attack if we drop the apostrophe. So I said, I'm not going to have a heart attack if you drop the apostrophe. I said, drop the goddamn apostrophe. So they dropped the apostrophe and it was all very sweetly done with me. And I didn't mind at all. I mean, you know. Okay. Uh, but anyway, the press was certainly convinced I didn't mind. So I had to spend my time saying, I, I don't know. mind. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I'm yeah. glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Yeah. And the CEO called you up and said that. That was yeah. decent of him. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Good. That was James Daunt. James Daunt, yeah. Yeah, okay. You dedicate the book to your eight children. Yeah, three marriages and, and three children, three children, two children. And, um, yeah, it's been a long life. That's nice that they're up front like that. But actually, I, I, I've actually loved it and... and um, it probably sounds too good to be true, but it's a quite remarkably united family. There's three, eight kids, absolutely astonishing, a group, and meet and have hilarious parties, you know, twice a year. And I think that's great. some in London, some way away from London, but they really are remarkable, and um, that's lovely for me. Totally, yeah. There's yeah. often so much uh, friction in families like that, but there really isn't any, and. Um, I know you can't believe me if I say that, but there isn't. And um, I don't know, I put it down to, well, my oldest son, Richard, is 60 yesterday. Um, he's been a remarkable force, I think, in keeping everybody together. But they all just gelled. And um, with modern nice. communications help like anything. There's WhatsApp groups in this family, WhatsApp yeah. groups. Yeah. And it's so much easier these days. Isn't it? But no friction, no. That's really and not, not thanks to me, I have to say. I mean, I... I it's me that's caused the friction by getting married every ten minutes, you know. But I mean, it's it's not thanks to me. It's thanks to the niceness of the children, I guess. And uh, one of the children is adopted, which is the seventh, which is the one, two, three, four, five, six, fifth child. Um, and that can cause problems too. I mean, 
Yes. You know, an adopted child when it's a baby is absolutely great, but an adopted child when it's adolescent, you know, and she's 46 now. So that was another cause which might have caused friction. And in fact, reverse, I think, it sort of, everybody felt they wanted to help bring her up, you know. Um, you know I just ask you to put your uh, hand there just because of the, yeah, sorry. Um, no, that's really great. That is good. Uh, it's interesting you refer to Waterstone's employees as family too. Yeah, it sounds too schmaltzy, isn't it? Doesn't it? But it, 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 we started off with this huge dream, you know, in in nineteen eighty two, preposterous dream. I had no money at all, you know, two lots of alimony and everything else. I was out, you know, and um, but I had this vision of what it was going to be and. The moment I brought in the first five or six people who were actually experienced booksellers, by thank God they were, you know. Yes, from knew, Hatchards. Yeah, from them, Hatchards, yeah. yeah. I mean, they just came in a group. I mean, like a sort of... Yeah, from, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and they knew exactly, weren't they? read the business plan. They understood exactly what I was trying to do, exactly. So they then carried that sort of... What were you sort of, trying to do, exactly? Well, to have... Uh, well, let's let's pan back to 1982, and then uh, in Britain there was W. H. Smith, which had uh, 35 or 40 percent of the market, and, and and they were terrible, you know, really terrible stores. Why were they so terrible? Uh, the staff were selling books. They were selling plastic toys. They were selling fizzy drinks. They were selling chocolate bars. They were selling anything, you know, and knew nothing about what they were selling. So there was no fervor about that sort of thing about selling books. The stores were very scruffy, and Smiths were very arrogant, but they had a huge market share. They felt, you know, nothing could defeat them. That was a very, very big market share. On top of that, you had um, the uh, the big university towns had, on the whole, very good bookshops, you know, uh, in Oxford and Cambridge and in London and Edinburgh and Glasgow and in Dublin. And, um, you, you had your epiphany in Heffers. Which, which is now ours, of course, yes. yes but, yeah, yeah. Which is where I first saw. But so they were, they were great, but outside that, there were some pretty little village stores, but honestly, the standard was absolutely deplorable. Right. Um, and I'd been working in New York for a little bit, and I'd been transformed, my trend, whatever, transpired by the quality, I thought then, of New York bookselling, uh, which was so much better than I'd seen in England, with the graduates, undergraduates and graduates working in the stores. Everybody knew everything, everyone was enthusiastic. The writers love going there, and, you know, yeah. open till 11 o'clock at night, they deliver your book at any time of night, you know, it's just, it, I, why couldn't we do it here, you know, that was the vision, if you like, but to do it on, a, I thought the market was actually gaping for it here, because despite everything, uh, the book market was quietly growing, 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 there was only one year between the end of the Second World War and 1982 when we started, when the market went backwards by a very small degree in 1969, don't ask me why that was, I don't know, but every other year there was, it was a very, very solid market, but so badly served by, not by the publishers who were publishing great, but so badly served the retailers. Now, Hatchards absolutely understood, the Hatchards present to me of these five people absolutely understood what I was saying because Hatchard itself was a very good store yeah. and, but they understood immediately what I was trying to do 
And I said, look, we're going to grow this like crazy. We're going to grow it like crazy. Yeah, so yeah. We, why did you Why did you want to grow it like so because, fast? Because I thought the, the I thought the idea was so good. I wanted to move on like lightning. Right. Uh, before anybody else tried the same thing, really. And, uh, um, I see. To get to, you know, yeah, to become dominant. You get a so that... critical mass going. And yeah. particularly, it's not just critical mass in terms of stores. It's also critical mass in terms of public knowledge about, and the press knowledge, and media yeah. knowledge about what we were doing. Awareness. And the, awareness. And the media got behind us immediately. I mean, it's absolutely immediately. And the literary press here was right behind us, you know. So it was always going to win, but it was had no money all the time. So that's uh, it. That your book, uh, you, in the book, you're, you you talk about how often you're out there pounding the pavement trying to get more money. Yeah, from, it, yeah. every day. I mean, yeah. all the time. Yeah. You're being turned down all the time. Yeah. But if you're turned down nine to nine nine times, once somebody's going to pick you up. You know? It's a numbers you, game, you have to isn't go it? Go on and on and on. The Hatchards people and in, knew so much. They were. They were sort of fantastic, egging me on all the time. So they were so loving it themselves, you know. Right. And they had a bit of equity each, to all that sort of thing, which helped a little bit. And yeah. I think it's over-egged sometimes at that point. But nonetheless, they did have a little bit of equity, so they felt it was their their business too, a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, what happened was that um, young students wanted to join us, mm-hmm. and it became a sort of game. If you were honestly Oxford, Cambridge, you know. You've read English like I did, you know, you know, what the hell are you going to do with it when you come down, you know? Right. And suddenly Waterstones became something you could do when you're straight out of Trinity, Oxford, you know. You know, you could do that for a couple of years while you're writing your third novel and, you're, you know, you're doing all the rest of it. So there was an absolute crunch of people wanting to join us, these young kids, yeah. loving their literature, enormous enthusiasm. And funny, you say that, and this is... John Mitchison, yeah. he talks about the his popular podcast now basically being modelled on the staff rooms. Uh, I, 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 remember, I remember him saying that in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's a, that the Waterstones staff room were the model for what he and exactly he says in the book. He had better conversations and yes. Waterstones staff were yes. filthy as they were than he ever had at Oxford. You know? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so that's so, a big part so of it. So the enthusiasm was so enormous, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And we loved them to have enthusiasm. We had, somebody who, we had somebody who knew more about crime fiction than anybody I had ever known in any language. Uh-huh. So we sort of let her have a bit of a run at it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. she developed a following of people who looked at this, you know. And, and the press, it was always an easy press story all the time. But, you know, an awful lot of my time was spent raising the money, yeah, but I enjoyed the challenge of it, but nonetheless, I mean, God knows how I survived it, you know, but also the, the trade itself was biffing back at us, like the publishers loved us, you know, yeah. the authors loved us, and, yeah. uh, but there was a furious fight back from other booksellers, from Smith's particularly. Well, um, also the association didn't let you become a member of the charter, whatever You remember it was. that? In the, I mean, it didn't make any difference to us, but the insult was so absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, they're just, well, they're just afraid of you. Yes, and insulting, and I think I also this book's been edited so much I can't remember what's been taken uh, out of it. Sure. But I remember an occasion where we had a young manager, just twenty-three years old, and he stood up at the Booksellers Association meeting to ask a question, and he had to say, "My name is Peter Coates, and I'm from Waterstone," and they everybody booed him. And he was a, quite a shy kid. He came from the same college to me at Cambridge, actually. So I felt I was hugging towards him, but he's quite shy, respectful. 
literary kid, and he wanted people booed him when he got to his feet. Yeah. So I then wanted to open another fucking short right in front of those right. people. <laughs> well, you talk about how there's this so it's almost like this fight in you, and how much you actually savored fighting W. A. Smith, mm. uh, and combative almost. You mm. were because of this mm. attitude. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that helped you succeed. But we were winning all the time. It never really yeah. worried me, you know. No, no, no. Um, and you were winning, why? Because of the knowledgeable staff? Because, because the, sta the staff were unbeatable. I mean, right. they were just incredible people. But you hired all of them. Like, you interviewed almost Yeah, them. all of yeah, them. Right, yeah. right. Uh, they were just little interviews. Like, all I wanted to do, really, was to look them in the eye and say, yeah. look, this is the dream. Are you... Do you are you up for this you know right and just right. get the feedback where they were we took on more women than men which was quite interesting yeah. in those days yeah um, and i didn't do that deliberately just when we looked at the staff list i thought my god we've got more women than men and it's wonderful you know yeah well, there's a lot more women readers than male yeah. readers too yeah yeah and i think women are fantastic to work with too i love working with yeah them. yeah so other women don't think that so much but, <laughs> but. <laughs> okay um so, I mean, the slight joke is my next-door neighbour these days is Alan Bennett. Uh, we live in Primrose Hill, and uh, we opened a, a, a Leeds. He comes from Leeds in Yorkshire, you know, which is, you know, he's a sort of Leeds god. You know. There was a very well-known, very, very long-established bookshop there, which, which Alan loved, you know. That was his childhood was going there. And we thought it was actually hopeless, <laughs> without knowing this was Alan Bennett's favourite bookshop. So we opened as close to it as we possibly could, and they simply closed down. They didn't even... They didn't, didn't even... They threw the towel in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, your first ad, this is, this is how you start the memoir off. Uh, you indicated that you wanted to try and get employees the best happiest literary booksellers i thought happiest was such a i mean it, often you'll people the stereotype of a bookseller is someone who's not happy someone mm. who's kind of grumpy but you yeah. specifically yeah. asked for happy booksellers <laughs> i wanted a place to and it all sounds too pious rather but that is what I wanted. That's what I got. Actually, it's just people who right. love, who would love to go for the ride and really enjoy it. And, and okay, what I didn't want was people who just thought the easiest thing to do is to work in a bookshop. You know, I mean, just, it's not an easy way of life at all. You have to work like hell in a bookshop. You know. So you revolutionised the industry. Did you do that by basically importing uh, the American way? Well, people say it's. I think that was my fault. I think in a very early interview, I, well, I, as I did it with you a moment ago, I was with Double Day stores in New York, which really got me going. And um, right. it, it, I thought we could do it better than Double Day, but you know, nonetheless, it was the it was that sort of exuberant book selling that Double Day did in those days with those stores. It would get us going. It wasn't really American. It was very, very English actually. Once we actually hear it, it was very English. And uh, but the thing was that. Um, 
what helped enormously was the enthusiasm of the authors behind us. There you were, mean at readings, you mean? Like oh, wanting I mean, to come it, in? There, there, was not, there, was, there were no literary festivals in Britain in those days, mm-hmm. except for Hay was just starting at yeah. that time, but it was very embryonic, but that was just starting. And Cheltenham was, was, was quite a well-established festival, but there was nothing else, you know. So we told our stores, you know, you are a festival you know you open in Norwich there's a lovely store in Norwich yeah. I know I was yeah. just there so, so we, we said to the Norwich you know you are perpetual book festival yeah, in, yeah. in yeah. Norwich so be it you know <laughs> yes. so it, it, reading signings talking you know thinking. yeah okay so that was one of the ways you revolutionized it then the uh, the industry well, and I mean, I, longer hours too. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, bigger it stores. Wasn't just that. I mean, the eight shops were open on Sundays, which yeah. was illegal instantly, but we never took any notice of that it was open on Sundays. Mm, nice. And we were only prosecuted once because, you know, why prosecute a bookshop for opening on a Sunday afternoon? <laughs> I mean, it's doing the most harmless, lovely thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. And mo- and most most people just couldn't face the prosecution. They never prosecuted. <laughs> right. They used to get a warning letter occasionally, but more than more. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Sunday is late evening. It's, it's like every, against every, motherhood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, the revolution was Smiths dominating the market. So most people's experience or book selling, book buying, was a WH Smith store in Norwich or wherever you may be, which yeah. was awful. It was and awful. so the revolution, yeah. if you like, is for the first time they saw what a lovely thing bookshops can be, you know, looking rather like this. You know, right, you know, right. Uh, With the beautiful yeah. lighting and... Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the other thing is the range, too. You brought in huge a huge range. range huge like range. The never, never before. Uh, colossal range. Right. Uh, I remember opening, in 1999, opening... Have you seen the Waterstone store in Piccadilly here? I have, yes. Yeah which is the biggest bookstore in the world, in fact. Yeah. But I remember opening that in 1999, and I, I did a stop for it. What year was that? 1999, 23 years ago, 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember doing the stop um, with everybody, you know, but getting the stop in. And we'd never done a store of that size or anything like it. It's like 260,000 titles or something, isn't it? Or yeah, we, we put in 290,000. And um, it was... It was um, it was a wonderful thing to do. It was, it was just, you know. I bet. And, yeah. um, well, it's, it's, it's making all sorts of wonderful titles accessible now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember we had a little team that did fiction, you know. I mean, we couldn't get them to go home at night without getting the fiction yeah, ready. Great, yeah. Poetry, drama. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was beautiful. A big children's section there. They're almost proselytizing for the, the stuff that they think is great. Sorry, say again? They're kind of proselytizing for the, the titles that they think are worth reading. Yeah. Trying to, to in, interest the world in stuff that they think is great, yeah. right? Yeah. I think one of the tricks we had, a trick, it's one of the points of virtue we had, I think, is that, well, let's take John the Carrey, uh-huh. Or you like to sit John the Carrey on 25 novels. Uh, the temptation is just to stop yeah. six or eight, which sell like crazy, and some of them don't sell at all. It carries on a bad example. Well, let's take Graham Greene or Huxley or somebody. You, know, you get, the, the trick is to have everything from that author, everything. And it, you will then sell 
everything. You know, so the minor titles will sell, but also people will know you're going to have it. You know. Yeah, so you're reliable as a source. Yeah, exactly. Example from War would be um, Helena, uh, which you know you normally sell one copy a year, or if you can find it, you know, where you sell three hundred copies of Brideshead Visits. But we always made a point of having Helena there, and we sold Helena. It was interesting, didn't it? Yes, yeah. You get a sort of churn of self-satisfaction when you do it. It's almost like helping to educate the the reading public. I mean, they can go in and they can see all sorts of other titles. And people want to be educated. Uh Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, that was the first 30 years. Times are very different. I was going to say, I mean, now it's the Internet that provides a massive uh, range. Mm. And this is what the question that I had for you was, what what is James Daunt having to do now that you didn't already do? Nothing. It's the same thing. And that's what James does so well. The, the brilliance of having James Daunt there is uh, he's got two very nice shops of his own, you know. Is, I know, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 he, he's doing the same thing. He's got a total reverence towards a very high quality range and enthusiasm. He has a more difficult task than I ever had because I think the whole group is so vast now that it's very difficult to keep the same, although he would love to do it, it's much more difficult for him to keep the same sort of team generation going and and of course, you know but basically the James Dawn offers the same offer as we ever had, you know Right, And he right. just had more difficult task in Well, he had to turn things around because HMV kind of... Well, HMV fucked it up. Yeah, no, no, fucked it um, like you've never seen. I mean, it was, it was just, right. you know... And how did they fuck it up? It was because of commercialization? I, I, I fought a war with them against... I was chairman of the group, you know. I couldn't, right. I couldn't stop them ruining it. It was, a private, it was private equity companies coming yeah. in, ripping out the stock, you know. So. And what they, they were discounting and uh, promotions? and is Shortening that, the range. Shortening the range, yeah. Drastically shortening the range. Uh, because what, that saved money? Because they thought, why are you stocking Helena? Let's hold that example. You know, yeah. You're only going to sell two copies a year. Why? You know, explain to me why. You know, you, know, you have to say, well, I can't explain to you because you just don't understand what book selling is. You know, it's, right. the, it's the sheer width of the range. It's the intelligence yeah. of the range. It gets yeah. people longing to come to the store. Yeah. It's, mean, the, it's the, the browsing that they love to do. And this is a great, This you're catering to that. Yes, yes. But what is so interesting is that I'll ask James, but I think the figure will still be correct, that well over 70% of people in our day buying books and waterstones were buying books that they were meant, meant to buy in the first place. You know, they went yeah, in they wanted impulse. to find Helena. They got yeah. so, so happy of the store. <laughs> they were, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. discretion purposes or, you know, with, <laughs> with everything. Yes. I think that's still true. Now, what is different is he's got to face is, is a very mature Amazon. And, well, this uh, is it. Yeah, you didn't uh, have that. Well, I had it at the end, but, right. but I, um, it was it was very frightening. Uh, but what none of us quite understood about Amazon was that where they are absolutely brilliant, as far as book selling is concerned, is look. Let's go back to 
bet to Piccadilly. So 290,000 titles. Biggest bookstore in the world had 290,000 titles in it. In Britain, there were 600,000 titles in print at that time. I mean, we have in print in this modern Britain way more than anybody else in the world, much bigger than America has, you know. Mm -hmm. The titles are kept in print here for much, much longer. So what Amazon proved to be absolutely brilliant at was dealing with the long tail, you know, which was so long for us. You really couldn't reach all that tail, but it was perfect for online book selling. Which, which, which Amazon have 100% of the market now, actually, to our relief, really. But you're talking about uh, print-on-demand, then? Uh, uh, print-on-demand also, but all, but just physical books, too. The, the, in, in stock, yeah, yeah, they yeah. which even the biggest books in the world couldn't. Yeah, and we had a wonderful stock, but we, even we couldn't cut no. the whole length. No. So they were brilliant at picking up there. Um, the other thing is that about Amazon is, is that Amazon market has changed here for books somewhat than it was when it first came in. Um, I think what is true, it's still true, is that if you've got one title in your mind when you wake up on the Monday morning, you have a book I must buy today, and there isn't a Waterstone or whatever nearby, you go on Amazon. If there's one you know, knockout book which you really want to have, you go to Amazon and for the best, yeah. you know. But what they don't have is the browse market. And however hard they try it, they don't get the browse market. Right. The browse market is a physical thing. Waterstone's been very bad at online book setting, incidentally, I mean, which we never succeeded in doing well. You know, why isn't Waterstone's website more successful? I can't really tell you. Um, mm-hmm. But it's uh, improved. Uh, I think it was ruined by HMV originally, and we've yeah. never, never quite got it right since. But mm. the stores are still of very high quality. Yeah, yeah no, you speak of Norwich. I was just there yesterday and uh, that store in Norwich is gorgeous uh, and there's lighting and the, you've got a really nice little cafe upstairs it's, it's did you read the book through to the end you don't have to say you did oh I did in fact that's I've got a question to you uh, for you about those two short stories that well were I wanted in to there. say that the first story is Norwich. I don't know if you picked that up. Or I didn't pick that up. Okay. No, I didn't. I, didn't. I don't Norwich. think that was well, not. I don't know that. I, was that no, mentioned? She jumped off the top of the hill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was the store that she jumped off? Norwich store, yeah. Oh. Well, she went up. I don't the know that you mentioned Norwich in. I didn't. I didn't. No, I so I wouldn't have. How would I pick that caref- up? I carefully didn't. Yeah, it was Norwich. It was a multi story car park fairly near there. She joined up in. Okay, so yeah, so the listeners are probably thinking, what the hell are they talking about? You put, and this is what's going to be a question of mine toward the end, and that was, quote, Hemingway talking about, you, you know, fiction often allows us to tell the truth more clearly. And you put in two short stories, one about a, a beautiful love affair, two young lovers, and one of them, the, the male dies, and she, the woman commits suicide and then there's another one so it's about love and waterstones and this the second one is about a, a marriage the husband is in love with the, the a woman 20 years his junior his wife but she's not so in love with him and she falls for someone else i'm thinking what the hell is this doing at the end of his memoir i'm, think, I'm thinking is this supposed to be him did he have uh, anyway, maybe you can ask that question. <laughs> hmm. It's personal. And, I kind yeah, of figured. The people who know me know, know why that's there. Right. So it's, it's, and it, I should mention that the woman who committed suicide 
you go out of your way quite a number of times in that short story to say how attractive she is. And I'm thinking, that's interesting. Yeah. I wanted to write both those stories, because they both... Yeah. They're very self-indulgent, and the publisher didn't want me to include No, them, I didn't. I, I didn't. You know, well, as, as a reader, I'm thinking, what the hell is did he uh, tag these two on here for? But then I'm thinking, they're very good. They're about love, which is a wonderful topic. And they're probably self-revelatory. So if you want to know who Tim Waterstone is, you might want to pay attention to these uh, no. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the difficulty of this book was, you know, there has to be a lot of business stuff in it. There has to be a lot yes. of childhood in it. Yes, it had to, I, I couldn't find a way of doing it any differently. And, it did. But, it was a bit jarring, I should say, almost bizarre. But on the flip side, uh, it did, certainly gave me something to think about uh, and thinking about who you are. Yes, I tried to get, you know, there's a short chapter at the end. I haven't read this for couple of years yeah but um yeah I talk, about, I talk about what happens you know yeah. the rest of my life and things that came my way and i did them and this that the other and right. yeah. i tried to get back to the personal towards the end of it yeah and um yeah very personal excuse me but, but I, those stories i had an incredible reception from i mean public reception yeah. i mean um <laughs> The beautiful stories uh, they are. I mean, just staggering. And, oh. uh, both online and when I when I was selling the book, I was going around the country promoting it. You know, right, right, right. People would always go back to their stories then. But I thought they would never be read those stories, but they they really were. So, they're 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 so beautiful. It, it's makes the book odd, but it makes it me. You know, so, it's a, you're odd. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, no, no. I, as I say, I wasn't. I'm not being critical. Bizarre isn't meant to be critical uh, I, I'm, I, I thought they were really really interesting they kept my attention for sure and they made me think about who you are which is interesting too well you know I wanted to lay down something which my children could read in 30 years time and just know me through the book a bit you know? yeah one of the interesting things here, uh, your father, and I'm speaking of personal in the early part of the book, uh, you talk about how he, uh, he he hurt you, he snubbed you, and damaged you. And uh, well, I, I, you know, what happened when I was re writing this book was that the more I started to write about my childhood, the more I remembered things as I thought I. I didn't know about but things just poured out of me yeah and yeah. Um, it, I mean it was therapy you know self-induced yeah. therapy of course what it was so I didn't know what I was doing but right well you talk about Waterstones being the, uh, the, this, you know, the sort of the main driver of your life was your fa failed relationship with yeah. your father and here's a way for you to sort of show your proof of worth I was damaged by it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, an awful lot of people are damaged by their parents. Yeah, well, that's what yeah. Philip Larkin says. They yeah. fuck you up. Yeah. They fuck but I'd forgotten up. so much. And what it made me realize your brain stores stuff. You don't necessarily. Yeah. It's like sort of searching online for something, and you know, the stuff is there. It's, it's there, and it's influencing what you're doing today without, uh, without you knowing it in many cases. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, you were admitted. You are, were omitted from his will. Fuck. 
And there's nothing in his will anyway. No, but... But what an astonishing thing to do. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, um, the, the, it's such a lovely, uh, uh, part of the book, the, 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 your early years, and uh, I, uh, I mentioned it in an email to you, I couldn't help but thinking of my father. He, he grew up in Tunbridge Wells, he had a nanny who was actually more like his mother than his mother. He was badly, uh, sexually abused both during the war, uh, there was a soldier that was bill he only told me this in his 60s, billeted at the house, he, who it's, you know, sodomized him, and he was, he was abused at the school, the, private, the, the public school that he went to. Uh, and he also, he was driving, riding a bike along a, near Tunbridge Wells, and he told me that this German plane came in, came in and started shooting at him. And he, he went into the ditch, and then he came out, and he saw the bullet holes in the road where he would have been if he hadn't. And you have almost exactly the same story. Same thing, extraordinary. I know. I just like, yeah. oh, my goodness. That's extraordinary thing. But I just couldn't help but think, these fucking German pilots going <laughs> after our children? Like, yeah. what the fuck is that? Yeah. What the fuck is that? How extraordinary is your father? I, I know. I couldn't Bizarre. believe it. saw. <laughs> I know. Well, it happened. And, uh, yeah, we, we were on the path back, you know, to the airfields in north of France and Belgium. They had a few bullets left. They fired the kids. It's dreadful. You know? I know it's dreadful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> shit. Anyway. Um, I find that extraordinary, your father. Well, I couldn't believe it when I was when I read your story. Yeah. I couldn't believe it because yeah. that's his story, and that he was from Tunbridge Wells. And, yeah, but uh, anyway, five, six miles from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, no books in the house. Your parents' house, you said. No, no. Well, there are three. No, there's nobody read. Which actually was quite unusual in those days because there's no television. There was yes, exactly. Uh, cursory tele radio. Was, but, but, you know. Tell me about uh, Miss Santoro. Yeah, well, she, well, she she was a huge influence on me. I mean, she, I was a funny little boy. So I had a big stutter, and you know, yeah, and I, I was a slow reader. I, I, yeah, I mean, technically, I couldn't read you know, at the age of six or so. Mm -hmm. But I arrived in this bookshop, and I just loved the books, you know. And she, I mean, she wasn't a very nice woman or anything, but she just mm -hmm. was very kind to me. And um, uh -huh. uh, I think she saw in me, I don't know, she did whatever she did. And, and, uh, and she actually taught me to read, and, and I mean, physically how to read, you know. Wow. And then, yeah. having taught me how to read, she then sort of, I mean, I knew her all the way until I went to Cambridge, you know. And she was great at book marketing, wasn't she? Fantastic, yeah. yeah. And what, what did she teach you then? Uh, she may have taught me everything. I don't know. I mean, she, she was an important woman. Now, that's an example, actually, of how good an independent bookstore can be, you know. Okay. This uh, was in Crowborough, was it? Crowborough, yeah, which is near Tumbridge. And... Um, and that was a sample of it, it is possible to run a very good independent bookstore in not a very bookish town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. do a very good job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so one of the things that I do with with these these podcasts is I, you know, it's just, it's just uh, now I'm introducing it now, finally, and that is really I'm interested in you're a, you're a best practitioner. 
a, a bookseller. You're one of the best in the world. Mm. One of the best the world has ever seen. So, uh, so I'm interested in you know what you did, how you did it, why you did it, and why mm. does it matter? Mm. Just to, to keep those in mind. So, just in a nutshell, what did you do? I think I did something very simple. Is I saw a market which I personally loved and which I thought was astonishingly badly treated at the distribution end of it. I mean, it's so conceited, I can't bear thought of it. But, you know, uh, but, uh, but you asking me the question, I'm going to answer it, you know. Yeah. And I, I think what I did was that I know what I did. I got 320 stores out there which were providing for the British public a, a means of access. To, I mean, what is that? A means of what? A means of access to literature. Yeah, and, cultural um, life. It was just as simple as that, you know. It's not... You were filling a gap, a void, a vacuum? It was a huge gap. Right. I mean, there were other multiples that started to follow us. Their borders went to Britain right. and couldn't get a grip on the market. They made the mistake of sending American people to run British bookstores. Which yeah, not good. Silly mistake. You know. it, it's just sheer determination. I mean, Blackwoods tried to buy us. We refused to sell, and then we bought them. You know, I mean, it was just, it's just sheer determination, really. Yeah, you you had an epiphany in Heifer's bookstore in yeah. Cambridge, and that epiphany was. You know the store or not? I was just there. Yeah, I yeah. was there about a week ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought what Heifer's was, and that's that's what I that, I got the sort of vision out of it. That what you need to do is you can't do Heifer's around the country. You know, what you can do is have, which has great stores you have a sort of the virtues of heifers which you know, together, and of, together with the energy of Miss Santorio Crobra who do anything to solve books you know right, anything right, right right I mean using me as a little boy going around on a bicycle delivery for her you know, yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so suddenly put the two together you have something fantastic I mean heifers was fast asleep I mean you know they, they weren't trying to do anything just sitting there in the middle of Cambridge yeah know. yeah waiting for people to come yeah. and buy stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. Heifers with energy. I see. Dry, I see. Heifers with energy, okay. Um, and you learned about branding from allied breweries, really. And you had to, maybe you could tell me about Derek Holden well, that was, Brown. I, I, I learned a lot there, actually. What we did succeed in doing was branding it very, very early on. Branding, yeah. So, uh, uh, like a clear corporate strategy, yeah, objective. But making it very, not being shy about publicity, you know, but we shameless about it, you know. Yeah. But we had the market with us all the time. People wanted us to work. People got to know the name. The name is good, incidentally. I don't think it's probably good in mind, but no, it's a slightly unusual it, name. It's a rather good book selling. You know. It's not good to be called Smith, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, this Derek Holden Brown always had time for workers. Well, what I liked about him was I'm wildly left-wing had been all my life, you know. Mm -hmm. And this was a... You can't believe how class-written Britain was in those days, but he was a, astonishingly good at... Um, I was his PA, not even his PA. I was the person who carried his bags around after him, you know. Um, 
Um, he was sort of teaching me as he went, but he was fantastically good at going into a brewery, one of ours, a vast company in those days of brewery, and he knew people's names, he remembers people's names of people's children, and it wasn't patronising, it was just no. beautifully done. And it was it, genuine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely genuine. Yeah. And I thought, this is fantastically good. And you, you could start off with a light of joy at seeing him, and you know, uh, yeah. And there'd be a little joke about a local football team, and there'd be this and that. He just was like a sort of hack politician, if you like, but he actually meant it, you know. Friendly. Yeah. Friendly. I, I learned a lot from that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just jumping back to the financing, you had to personally guarantee the company's uh, ongoing uh, rental liability. Well, that's what enabled us to do it. But, I mean, it was an incredibly risky thing to do. But um, And you kept opening one after another after that, another? The only way I could get the shops open, yeah. Because I couldn't put any more money in the company. Cause I was, you know, That's how I managed to hold a 25% stake all the way, because um, the people backing us kept on upping my equity because of the fact that I was guaranteeing and guaranteeing rents of you mentioned a Dane Howell and Julian Toland, and you saying they are incomparable. Well, why were they incomparable? Uh, knowledge was just incredible, and their enthusiasm about selling books. Dane was an interesting story. He was a child actor, a very, very successful one. He's sort of curly-headed, very small, and um, his agent called him in when he was 16 and said, Dane... It's all been wonderful. And that's the end of it, Dane. Go out in your life. It's hope poor Dane who spent his life not being educated, but being a child star in every West End show was suddenly out of work. So he'd always love reading. So he became an absolutely phenomenally successful bookseller and uh, with great actorly charm. And Julian Tolan simply knew more about certain sections of fiction than I ever believe anybody can know. Totally. They're both dead. Are they, yeah, so are they dead? The staff adored them and right. admired them for their knowledge. And, and, and uh, yeah, right. they were great, really, really wonderful. And so, knowledge, as much as anything, was the respect. That they got they got respect because yeah. of the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Young staff loved it. Right. And I had to be careful that I knew enough myself, you know, because the young staff all straight out of Oxbridge knew a hell of a lot you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. and we weren't shy at showing it yeah yeah okay so I'm I'm quoting Paul Bagley Bagley yeah. what also happened was that Tim Waterstone gave young graduates in particular an extraordinary level of responsibility for running often five million pound businesses for hiring training and occasionally firing staff for managing costs and stock levels for choosing and occasionally returning all the books in the store for deciding which to display and promote and for inviting every author in to inviting every author in to read and talk uh, above all it was the most fun place i ever worked i made friends for life waterstones was a stepping stone for the ambitious but also a haven for the sensitive and a meeting place for the like-minded. Oh, that was yeah. very nicely put. He's head of fiction at Bloomsbury now. He what? He's head of fiction at Bloomsbury now. Oh, oh is he? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's nicely put. Yeah. 
What was so extraordinary, really, was that, you know, we had serious financiers behind us, all of whom were on the board. Yeah. And yet they allowed us to run that model. They allowed you to what? To run that model, whereby we could give this responsibility to young people. Right. But they did. They were actually great. You know? I've had terrible experience with financiers over the years, some terrible experiences, some very good ones. You know, The difference, the spectrum is so vast between you know, good and bad. You reference, I've, I've heard this from a number of people, that John Sando yes. is magnificent, you said. You said magnificent. So wh- why magnificent? Terribly small, about the size of... Uh, you can't move for books, literally. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, again, it's the knowledge and the drive, you know. But I've got a very good book, so I rather like John Sanders. They are John Sanders in Chelsea. You know. There's one in Primrose Hill, which is where I live at the moment, which is very like that. And they know all their customers, so they ring and they say... Tim, I've got the new John Martin in. You know, can I keep your copy? And of course, you say, "Oh, yes, please." Yeah, yeah. Fantastically good at knowing their customers. You know, knowing what the customers are like, making friends with their customers. Right. Sandoz favourites be brilliant at it. You know. He even sends you books and charges you for them you didn't actually order. You know? <laughs> oh goodness! Just expecting you to, you'll love it, right? And, and yeah, you'll want yeah. it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd like that so much. Perfect stock, perfect staff, perfect control. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, talking about control, how the hell we did control it, I cannot think, because the internet didn't exist. Mm. Um, there were no, clearly no mobile phones, uh, hardly any PC. I mean, you know, how did we get it? I don't know how we did it. But somehow we did. Mm-hmm. That was your mantra, really, though. Perfect stock, perfect staff, perfect control. I'm, not, I'm still not sure what you mean by that. Though. The, the, well, the staff knew what I meant. The perfect control, what does that mean? Just that you. It meant trusting people to stay in line. We'll trust you with that store. You're 23 years old, you've got £5 million off birth there. Right. But you'll stay in line. And you won't let it get out of control. You won't allow the staff to help themselves to money. You won't, you know, you'll. Yeah, okay. And you're very uh, focused on sales per square foot. Yeah, that's what uh, our prime control was, really. Right, I think I uh, thought so. Yeah, um, that's how you could measure how they were doing yeah. at different stores. Um, let's take an example. Uh, this this shelf behind you here, you know, these shelves behind you here. Okay. Right. Now a really good bookseller. Let's say that's fiction. A really good bookseller. We would say we want you to make five hundred pounds a square foot off that over the course of the year. So, you know, do it as you wish, stock it as you wish. You know our rules. You know, you stop the minor titles, you stay with the major titles. A, a really good, really brilliant bookseller will get you five hundred pounds a square foot over the year. A, a perfectly good bookseller, but not as good, will get you four hundred pounds a square foot. Right. Uh, that makes a fantastic difference to the. So, if you make people think in terms of how can I use the space to its absolute maximum in terms of getting sales per square foot off it, what do I do? And um, it was effective because in the other books as we're thinking about it in those terms, John Sander in his private way certainly was, you know, he squeezed every... every yeah. yeah. What's, the, what's the, the, the breakdown between backlist and front lists? 80% of your sales was backlist? 
Yeah, front okay. is what it says, what it means in the new titles. Yeah, yeah. But if you go back to Smith, Smith's 100% of their business was frontlist. Frontlist, yeah. yeah. And I liked how you talk about site selection. You just followed uh, Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> right? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they spent all, yeah, exactly. all the money that's on <laughs> Yeah, that's good. So you hired someone to just keep tabs of where, <laughs> where they were going. Uh, you you got this list of points about entrepreneurship in the book. This is seven of them, uh, and you you're a fan of Sam Walton, the Walmart guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had an influence on you, I guess. Yeah, I don't know how he's regarded, man. But to me, he's a genius in some ways. Yeah, I think he screwed up a lot of towns, like he screwed mm. up their centre, high mm. streets. But I just like the spirit of what you're saying. Everyone sure. telling you're going the wrong way. Then. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He, he countered to the conventional wisdom, right? And we did touch on this. Entrepreneurs are particularly good at identifying uniqueness and differentials. Mm. And then shared values... This was about branding. You shared the values of your potential customers. Would that be correct, would you say? Yeah. And you, you conveyed those values. We conveyed the values, yeah. Uh, and what are those values? Yeah. I mean, it's on that note. Um, there is a magazine here called Witch. Went to heard of it. It's a consumer. It's very, very long established. It's not really a magazine. It's consumers' association sort of oh, yes. magazine. If you like, they did a survey, which, right? It's like the sort of National Trust, you know, right? Um, and they do surveys all the time. Well, they uh, on various things, but every two or three years they do a survey on your most loved high street names. One at the top hundred, the one you like, like least, and. Ever since it was, Waterstones had grown big enough to be sort of around enough time. We've never been out of the first four. W.A. Smith's down the bottom, right? 100, yeah. Mm-hmm. Regularly, the last one of all. Right. And why? Because their carpets are filthy, the staff are all over the place, and you know, they just dreadful right. place to be, you know. But even when we were small, we were still ranking up with fast, with Mark Spencer's, with John Lewis. Mm-hmm. With, you know. mm-hmm. And again, that is because why? Why? Um, we opened in Bath once. There's that lovely street. It comes down towards the Abbey. Uh, a lovely, big, uh, really beautiful bookstore. Uh-huh. Perhaps one of the more, most beautiful. But I remember um, opening it and then rushing back to London and you know, doing the standing and I went back again on the Saturday and sat having a cup of coffee in a coffee shop in whatever the street is and um, there was a couple of women having some morning coffee and, and clearly it was one woman was staying with the other woman so she, this one woman was the host showing her this other woman bomb and she said oh we've got this wonderful bookstore do you know they've been there a hundred years? Nice. And I thought, we only opened last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm getting terribly conceited in this conversation. No, you? no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. It's not fine, it's painful. But anyway, go on with it. Well, I do want, again, I, know, I want to know what you do. You told me what you did and how you did it. Are you comfortable with, have you covered off those, those things? Yes. Okay, and then why you did it? Why did you do it? I wanted to do it because I didn't like working in corporations. I'd worked for Smith, which I absolutely hated. Um, I you got, did you get fired from WC? Yeah, yeah, right. Why'd you get fired? Not being a team player. Ah, right. I okay. wasn't exactly a team player, I was a No. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was at the age of 41 where I was. I was free and I wanted to do this very badly. Right. You just had this. You knew it was right, the rightness of it. Is that it? I knew it was right. I knew the plan was great. Yeah, yeah. I knew I was absolutely broke. There's nothing to do with it. So how was I going to do it? You know. So you um, needed to get them financing it. But I just thought I could. That I would find people to back it. Then. And and why did you do it again? I thought it was a fantastically wonderful idea right. in a market which I absolutely loved. You know. Yeah. Okay. Here's uh, just here's Waterstones. What it. What it means, 275, page 275 on my paperback edition. And it's Atlantic. Atlantic publishes, published this book. Will Atkinson. Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed him. Do you know him? Well, I did interview him, a lengthy interview, because he was such an impressive marketing person. He did the marketing for... Faber and Canning Gate and mm. that, that group of independents mm. mm. and, and did it brilliantly. Mm. Mm. Uh, He's a good guy. He, but he started at Waterstones, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so many people in the business. Yeah. I yeah. mean, staggering. Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's Waterstones. Now, this is Sathnam Sangera. In, yeah. the, in the Times in 2017. It's Waterstones' survival. Its survival really matters in, to Britain. I am not talking here about the whimsical romance of what books mean for writers, but what a bookshop <laughs> means for any community, economically and culturally. The survival of a really great branch of Waterstones in my hometown of Wolverhampton, for instance, even as the city centre suffers from an epidemic of empty shop units, is more than an important cultural symbol. It encourages reading, literacy and intellectual exploration in a way that the web never will be able to. Waterstones is a cultural symbol. It's more than that. And this is you here. I believe the nation's cultural good health would not have been the same without us. Mm. It's a beautiful compliment, though. He's a difficult man, too. I was, I was amazed to read that. Mm. I mean, I, I was very proud when I read that, that it, coming from him. That's, that's, I mean, I, we started in 1982, and I, I really do believe that we did. Maybe this is the last thing I could say. I really do believe that we, we actually made a We were a major impact on the cultural good health of Britain. I really do think we were. I believe that. Just want to. I do want to finish on uh, your life philosophy. What I like in life is comradeship, team loyalty, courage, and a sense of common purpose toward the achievement of a worthwhile and honourable goal. 
and a sense of being true to oneself by means of a compulsion to work one's socks off in a cause or a venture in which one wholly believes, a commitment to life, really, that brings happiness in its wake. And that's what it did for me. Mm. Did I write that? Okay. You did write that. Okay. Um, well, I, I believe it. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing you so your much. story with, uh, with me. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with uh, Tim uh, Waterstone, who, what do you do now? <laughs> um, what do I do now? Yeah. I'm writing and... Um, short stories or novels? Uh, short stories, yes. And um, I'll see what happens. You know. Very good. I'll hand them over across to Curtis Brown in due course. If the leather say, forget it, Tim, which they may well. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you. for your Thank time. You.